Thanks very much for your prayers as we come to this uh, second talk in our series in Habakkuk. Uh, many of you will have been here a few weeks ago when one of our church members, Angie Williams, was talking about her experiences overseeing one of the call centers that was receiving calls from people in the Grenfell Tower while it was burning down, receiving calls from people who are about to die. And Angie was speaking about that terrible night, and she told us that all she could do was pray. She'd prayed to God to act. And I'll never forget her next line. If you were here, you probably remember it as well. She said this, that night, God didn't answer my prayers. It left her with doubts, questions, struggles. How can God be good and something like that happen? But she'd resolved to take her doubts to the Lord. Now, sometimes our experience of life doesn't seem to, to match the God that we believe in. It can be a global disaster. They shake us. The tragedy of a, an earthquake, a, a flood, a famine. It, it can be a terrorist attack that leaves us thinking, how can a good God who's in control of the world and hate evil allow that to happen? Sometimes we saw last week in Habakkuk 1, the issue is closer to home. It's actually within God's people, the church. A division over a, a ridiculous, a, a silly argument. Maybe a very public moral failure. What do we hear about churches more than anything else at the moment? Historic pedophilia. And we think, Lord, how can you let your name be associated with that? How can people who claim to be followers of Jesus do that? Why have you let it happen? Now, Habakkuk, we have seen, is a prophet living who is a, with a profound difficulty because he's living in the gap between the world as he finds it and what he believes about God. And he's struggling to understand that, struggling to understand God and his purposes. And I guess if we're honest as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, that will have been our experience at some time. We know God is like this. And yet, in our world and in our lives, we experience pain and suffering and evil, and we just can't bring the two things together. Oh, we saw last week Habakkuk's into a particular historical context. It's probably around about 600 BC as Habakkuk is written. Uh, on the throne of God's people Judah is King Jehoiakim. Uh, God's people now are a tiny, small nation around their capital, Jerusalem. And in general, they've been pretty rebellious against God. Uh, Jehoiakim's dad, uh, Josiah, the, the, he'd brought in some reforms, but, but pretty quickly they'd gone back to idolatry, to rejecting the God who'd brought them into being and to worshipping other pagan gods. And it's that state of affairs that brings violence and injustice in the nation that causes Habakkuk to cry out, as he does in chapter 1 and verse 2. Let me read it to you. It's probably the fam most famous line in the book. How long, Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen or cry out violence, but you do not save. Do you know what the Hebrew word for violence is? Hamas. We know that word today, don't we? Terrorism is associated with Hamas. How long, Lord, amongst your people is this brutal violence and you don't seem to do anything about it? It wasn't a, a detached question from Habakkuk. 
It was for a man who, who saw the suffering amongst God's people brought on themselves by others who claimed to follow the Lord and thought, why aren't you doing anything about this? It's not that Habakkuk is accusing God or insulting God or blaming God. No, I think Habakkuk is an example of faith seeking understanding. He's struggling with real issues, and he's going to the Lord with them. In fact, Habakkuk is almost unique in the Old Testament as a prophecy because we don't have here God's words spoken to his people, do we? We have a, a discussion between God and Habakkuk that we're allowed to look in on as he teaches us. And this week, Habakkuk gets God's answer to his question. How long will this suffering go on? And this is the answer. I'm going to send the thoroughly evil Babylonians to punish my people. And it's an answer that actually causes Habakkuk a whole new set of problems. Because it teaches us this, and, and this is probably the big truth that we're going to have to wrestle with tonight. It's this. The sovereign Lord uses evil. The sovereign Lord uses evil for his own purposes. See, Habakkuk asked back in chapter 1, verse 2, why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you cause me to watch wrongdoing? And so the Lord replies in verse 5, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. This is something that even God doesn't expect Habakkuk to be able to get his head round. But what the Lord said next probably didn't affect Habakkuk's head as much as it caused his stomach to sink. Because look what God says in verse 6. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. The Babylonian Empire was in ascendancy at this time. They've just really become top dogs. They defeated Assyria, the previous superpower of the day, and they've just taken out Egypt in 605 BC at the Battle of Carchemish. And these boys are brutal. They're ruthless. They're impetuous. Look at verse 7. They are feared and dreaded people. They're a law to themselves, and they promote their own honor. They don't, they don't care about anyone else. No, it's their honor they seek. There's no pretense here that they're interested in the Lord at all. They have more than enough firepower to carry out their self-centered aims. Look how they're described in verse 8. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. My kids are quite into watching what we call David Battenborough, but it's actually David Attenborough on planet Earth. And inevitably, in every program, there is some brutal death brought upon some cute and innocent animal, a bloody scene which they rejoice in. Well, what Habakkuk hears from the Lord is you pick a brutal killer. You pick an animal that's so fast you can't resist it, you know, a leopard or, or an eagle. Well, that's what these people are like. You, you pick something that's irresistible, a sandstorm. That is what the Babylonians are like, and they're coming for you. They mock kings, he says. They, they destroy castles over their lunch break. And here's the most shocking of it all. Look at verse 11. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. That's the Lord's verdict on them. They're guilty of worshipping themselves. 
Look, says the Lord, I'm going to send a bunch of wicked, arrogant, guilty, idolatrous thugs to beat up my own people. Now, that actually shouldn't have surprised Judah because God had warned them back in the book of Deuteronomy that if they rejected him, this is exactly what he'd do. Deuteronomy 28 and verse 49 says this, The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand, a fierce-looking nation without respect for the old or pity for the young. God uses evil to achieve his purposes. And here his purpose is to bring discipline to his own people. Now, just something we've got to be clear on. It's not that the Lord does evil. God, God is perfectly good. And in the Bible, he never does anything wrong. But he uses evil. An illustration might be something like this. I used to uh, do judo when I was younger, till about the age of 12. It wasn't really I was any good at judo. It's just that I haven't actually grown since I was 12 years old. So judo involves sitting on boys smaller than me until the breath went out of them and I won the contest. I, I unfortunately, when I got to the final of one competition, met uh, a young black lad who was, who was really very irritating because he wouldn't stand still long enough for me to sit on him. And he had mastered the real art of judo, which is to use your opponent's force to throw them and score points. So they rush at you, you grab them, and over they go, ipon, you win. Well, that's a little bit like God and evil. It's not that God does evil, but he uses the forces of evil for his own purposes. He's in so much control of the world that actually he can take his enemies and achieve his goals, his plans, through them. And that's what Habakkuk is told he's going to do. The destructive force of evil is not something the Lord creates, but he does achieve his ends through it. And actually, that is fantastic news for us. Because Habakkuk gives us two applications. You see, these verses are picked up in the New Testament. And the first application is this that he uses evil to save us. God uses evil to save us. See, in the book of Acts in the New Testament, the apostle Paul, an early Christian, has been preaching his heart out to the Jews in a place called Pisidian Antioch. He's been showing them that the whole of their history in the Bible is pointing to the Lord Jesus, and that salvation, being brought into a relationship with God, is only found in Jesus as he dies and rises again. And then he warns them with these verses from Habakkuk. Here's Acts 13, verse 40. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. You see, just as God used an unbelievable way to punish his own people, the, the terrible, dreadful Babylonians, so, says Paul, he's used evil in an unbelievable way to save people. He's used evil to bring judgment on his own son so that men might be forgiven. Peter spells it out in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. He says this about Jesus' death. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. God's set purpose 
was that Jesus would be crucified by wicked men. God uses evil to save us. You see, there was no greater act of evil than the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was the only innocent person to have ever lived. If, if you're not a Christian here tonight, one of the best things you could do on the way out is pick up from the welcome desk one of the copies we have of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you'll find in it the most beautiful human being who ever lived. The one person who never deserved to die or be punished. It was a dreadful act of evil to put him to death. And yet, it was also God's purpose. Actually, the heart of his plan to save us. That as the perfectly innocent Jesus died in our place, all of our evil was piled upon him that we might be declared innocent by God when we're guilty, that we might be brought into relationship with him now and forever. You see, the Lord uses evil to achieve your salvation. He brings new life and hope out of seeming disaster. He's acting to bring his faithful people to himself, even as wicked men appear to prosper, and Jesus gives up his life on a cross. So if you're not a Christian here tonight, you need to know that the God of the universe is so powerful that he centers his plan on the greatest act of evil, and as a result, if you come to trust in his son, the Lord Jesus, all of your wrongdoing can be dealt with forever. That is his love for you. And the fact that God rules over evil like that means that there is no place, no person that is out of his control in the entirety of his creation. History is literally in his hands. Every nation is under his rule. Every corner of the planet. In fact, the Bible says every spiritual being. Satan and all his minions. Well, the Lord says that he rules over them. You see, it's easy for us as, as Christians to think, well, God's slightly lost a bit of a handle, hasn't he, on, on the Middle East? I mean, he's lost control of all those Muslims. What's going on there? And, and maybe he's losing control in, in the UK as well because, because it seems to be quite hard to preach the good news about Jesus. Is God still in control here? Or, or is he just taking a kip from, from running our part of the world? But, but the message of Habakkuk is, no, God rules over all. And his rule is being used to save his people. And that's that great news for us, isn't it? As, as we pray for the good news of Jesus to go out into areas of the world where it seems that people just aren't interested, like Chessington. The great news is the Lord is using all, even those who oppose him, to bring about the salvation of his people. And the second wonderful truth is this that the Lord is sovereign over evil to make you more like Christ. The Lord's sovereign over evil to make you more like Christ. You see, Habakkuk chapter 1, you remember it's God's people who are under this dreadful judgment. Now, as Christians, we know that we will never be punished in the way that God's people are punished here in Habakkuk chapter 1, or, or rather as they were in 597 BC, as the Lord's word to Habakkuk came true, and the wicked and evil Babylonians did rock up on their doorstep and besiege the city. No, we will never suffer punishment for our disobedience because Jesus has died in our place. We are declared innocent by his death, though we know we are guilty. But it's important to remember that doesn't mean that we will not experience the Lord's discipline. 
And in one way, the Lord is disciplining his people in Habakkuk 1. He is teaching them what disobedience deserves. In fact, the Lord promises to discipline his people in the New Testament. So in Hebrews chapter 12, a a book in the New Testament, verse 6, says this, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and don't lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone who he accepts as a son. You see, just as God uses evil in Habakkuk 1 to discipline his people, so the Bible says he uses every circumstance of our life today to discipline us if we're his people, his followers. He makes us more like Christ through what we experience. Sometimes that's obviously the result of our sin. We can see, can't we, that if our relationships go sour because we can't control our anger, we know why that is. If our, our marriage becomes frosty or even ends because we can't control our lust or our lips, maybe even if we suffer a disease that's associated with our greed, let's not be naive, okay? If I have a heart attack, it won't be unrelated to my overeating. There'll be times we suffer in life, and it will be easy to line up why it's a result of our sin. Now, listen, I'm not saying that all of our suffering is the result of the Lord disciplining us. No, no, there'll be lots of people who experience dreadful things, and that has nothing to do with God's discipline or punishment at all. No, there'll be many times when we won't understand what is going on in our life. But, But what I am saying is this. We must not be afraid of seeing lessons to be learnt in the midst of suffering. Because the punishment that is brought upon God's people Israel, Judah, in Habakkuk's day, is brought upon them to to help them see that their situation is a result of the way they've disobeyed the Lord. And so I guess for us as a corporate people of God, we should examine ourselves as a church as the years go by and ask ourselves, for instance, if no one became a Christian, at Chessington Evangelical Church for the next decade, or if, say, we found that we were massively at each other's throats and hugely divided as a church, or if we were struggling financially and none of the money we needed to do the things we wanted was coming in, or if, uh, as individuals, we, we become deeply discontent with the Lord Jesus, well, it's far too easy, isn't it, to blame someone else? But we mustn't shy away from asking, well, perhaps there is a way that we are disciplining the Lord. Because if he is the sovereign Lord in control of every aspect of every life, including our lives, then if there is strife amongst us or a lack of people coming to Christ, it's not wrong for us to say, well, are there various ways that we need to learn from that? I think in our age, there's a danger that we blame the struggles of the church on the world around us. We say, well, there there are not many people becoming followers of Jesus, being saved, because the world out there is so hard-hearted. Or Christians are struggling to prioritize Jesus in their lives because the workplace and the, the pressure of education is so great that really they just can't put him first. But but the Bible's clear that God is sovereign over all our circumstances. He never has a problem controlling his world. And therefore, 
if we are experiencing difficulty in our spiritual lives, we need to be quicker not to blame the world, but to see if there are ways that we and ourselves are being half-hearted, being disobedient. It's interesting that in the history of the church, greatest growth has often occurred when the church is persecuted the most. Why does that happen? Well, because people's faith is refined. You really find out what people are trusting in if following the Lord Jesus Christ means you end up in prison. You really find out how to seriously take the Lord when it's a costly thing to follow him. So, two wonderful lessons from the Lord using evil. He uses it to save us. He uses it to make us more like Christ. But if you're anything like Habakkuk, that's going to leave you with a couple of problems. Because Habakkuk has problems with the Lord's answer. And here's the first problem that Habakkuk has with that. Okay, Lord, you say you're going to use evil. How can you tolerate people doing evil? Look at verse 13 with me. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Look, look, Lord, says Habakkuk, you're perfect. You can't even gaze upon anything that's wrong. So how can you put up with these wretched Babylonians? I mean, I know you say the people of Judah are a rum lot, but they deserve your punishment. I can see that. But the Babylonians, they're even worse. And if you don't ask the same sort of question, then you don't actually have an ounce of compassion for our world. Uh, I was uh, reading yesterday in the newspaper of some of the atrocities that ISIS have committed. They've been turned into a feature film, a documentary which was being recommended, but it's not for those of a weak disposition. At the same time, I read on and found out that the Iraqi forces that have now taken back Mosul are doing similar things pushing unarmed soldiers off cliffs for fun. Uh, Evil should cause us to shudder and cry to our perfect, holy, loving God. How can you put up with this? But Habakkuk's got a second question. He's even more surprised that the Lord allows these evil men to add insult to injury. He says this, will these idolaters prosper forever? Have a look down with me at verse 14. You've made people like the fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet, and so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net, and he burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest foods. Look, Lord, I I know your people are are drifting around aimlessly. Then you've sent the Babylonians along. And they capture us and they take us off to exile. But the result is they worship themselves. They they think they're fantastic. They rejoice in their own ability, like a a fisherman who gets a massive catch and then starts to worship his own net. Verse 17, is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? Around us there, there are people doing evil, says Habakkuk, and they just congratulate themselves as a result. And that might be true of our world as well. From the suicide bomber who does it for the glory of Allah, to the businessman who thinks that his success is all the result of his own brilliance, 
to the happy atheist slagging off Jesus on the telly? How long can they get away with ridiculing you, Lord? Or maybe closer to home for us is that non-Christian friend you have who lives in your street. And they don't go to church. They're not even interested when you try to invite them to something. But they're doing really well at work. And their kids look so happy. And they've just got a raise. And they're moving out of Chessington and they've managed to buy a house in Claygate. And you're thinking, what? Why? why is life so much better for them, Lord? I mean, they're not worshipping you. Why are they doing so well? The question is, where will you go for an answer? An answer with those problems of evil being allowed in a world where there is a good and holy God and people celebrating their own success whilst they reject the God who's made them. Because as Christians, we have to view the world through the lens of the Bible. See, if we just ignore problems like that, what we're effectively doing is relegating Jesus to a sideline in our lives, sort of Christianity to a hobby, and church to a sort of club or a self-help center. And the Lord of all the earth won't let us do that. We've got to face these real issues. And so what we must do is do what Habakkuk does here. We must actually go to the one who we have the problem with. The sovereign Lord is the one we must question. The sovereign Lord is the one we must question. Look at what Habakkuk does in verse 12. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. You see, Habakkuk has heard from God that the Lord is going to use evil. He doesn't actually know Habakkuk about the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet he goes back to God and rehearses what he knows to be true about his Lord. He says, look, Lord, you're eternal. Do you see that? You're from everlasting, verse 12. You always have been and you always will be. I know, Lord, you don't experience any surprises. I know, Lord, that you understand everything. You know the beginning and the end simultaneously. We often are people who are like a man standing in his garden trying to understand the intricacies of global warming by watching the clouds go by. That's what we're like in history, isn't it? We try and make sense of our life from all we know. But Habakkuk says, no, the Lord's everlasting. He's got a grip on the whole thing in in the way that we never will have. He's the one who created history, and therefore the Babylonians are just a tool in his hands. And we know that is the case, because the Babylonians came and they went. They were swept away by the Medes and Persians in the reign of Darius in the book of Daniel. In fact, as we look across the, the history of the world we can see that the great powers that seem to have oppressed God's people at different stages in history, they've come and gone. I've been reading while preparing a book by the great Welsh preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, From Fear to Faith, Problem Today, and it's a history of the book of Habakkuk. And in this book, Lloyd-Jones is talking about the great danger threatening Christianity of communism. And here we sit just a few years later, and communism in Eastern Europe has come, and it's gone. 
You see, the Lord says, Habakkuk, I know you're eternal. But he says also, Lord, I know you're personal. Did you see that? My God, my Holy One. (laughs) The transcendent God, the God who's outside space and time, is the imminent one who has come and made himself known. He's entered into space and time so we, his creatures, can know him personally. So we can say, you are my God, my Holy One. Of course, we know him in an even more precious way than Habakkuk because we know him as the one who became the man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who dwelt amongst us, the one who said to his first fearful disciples this in John 10, 27, my sheep listen to my voice, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Oh, Lord, says Habakkuk, I don't have a clue what you're doing with evil in the world, but you are my God, and I know you personally, and you're committed to me because the Lord is faithful. You see, the end of verse 12 is probably better translated there, rather than you will never die, we will never die. In the face of this horrible coming judgment, Habakkuk knows you are the Lord, you are my covenant God, you have pledged yourself to me in promise, so we, your trusting, faithful people, will never die. Oh, there's a a punishment coming, there's a discipline coming, but, but we won't die because you're for us, you're faithful. And we know that today as well. However bad it gets, the church will go on. The Lord Jesus said that I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. No, God is faithful. And therefore, Habakkuk knows he's safe because the Lord is sovereign. Do you see that in verse 12? He admits, you, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. God is in control. History is is his story. He writes it as he wishes. And that's why he says at the end of verse 12, you've ordained them to punish. But in the middle, in the middle, he entrusts himself to the God who is his rock, the one he can trust because he rules over his life. The government might be promising to crack down on terrorism today. The problem is they're not in total control. We might have great hope for the health service in the future. We might be very fearful of the health service in the future. But what we know is any promises made about the health service in the future, well, they're probably only as good as the paper they're written on. But the Lord, we can entrust ourselves to him because he rules over every aspect of history, says Habakkuk. And lastly, he admits that the Lord is holy. Verse 13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. It leaves him with questions that God is holy and yet there is evil in the world, but it also leaves him with the hope of an answer. You see, Habakkuk knows that the Lord will not tolerate evil forever. He is going to do something with it, and that's fantastic news. In fact, Habakkuk doesn't have to wait long. We only have to wait till next week until we see the Lord promise to deal with all evil in his world. But because Habakkuk knows what his God is like, because he knows that he is eternal and personal and faithful and sovereign and holy, he's willing to wait for an answer. That's what he does in chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand at my watch 
I will station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I'm to give to this complaint. So that's faith in action. If you're someone here in the midst of suffering, real personal struggle, the one thing I can't guarantee you is an answer. I can't tell you why that might be happening to you. I can't promise you that you'll pop out the other end of it trusting the Lord Jesus. I can't promise you that you'll pop out the other end of it at all. But but I can tell you there is a God who rules over history, a God who has broken into history in the person of His Son, a God who is personally committed to His people, a God who has promised that one day He will end all suffering in the world. And therefore, I can tell you there is a God worth waiting upon with your pain and your struggles. That's what Habakkuk does. He realizes there's only one person he can go to with his issues. One place to find truth, his faithful God. In fact, it's one of the greatest tests of Christian maturity. If when we come to something in our life that shakes us, or something in the Bible that we do not like, whether we will go to God with it, or whether we'll turn from God because of it. You can't go anywhere else with your questions. I mean, we can go to the world for wisdom. We might like the answers that we get. But in the end, they're only comforting lies. Only the Lord will give us the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth because He is the one who made everything there is. See, our faith is likely to be tested by perplexing circumstances in our lives. If it's not happened to you yet, it will happen to you sooner or later. But be that evil we experience or evil that we see around us. But the Lord promises He is in total control. He promises that He uses evil for the good of His people. He he promises that actually it's through evil that He has saved us at the cross, and one day there will be no more evil. Now, that's why Paul can say this famously in Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Habakkuk can't see how that's working. All he knows is that the thugs of Babylon are just about to rock up and smash down the gates of Jerusalem. But because he knows who God is, he's willing to wait for an answer. And will you tonight... Will you tonight, in the midst of your struggles and your battles, in the midst of the world we live in, a world where sometimes being a Christian can feel like being a very minority group, will you wait on that God for an answer? Because He's good and holy and faithful and personally committed to you in His Son, the Lord Jesus. I really uh, recommend people listen to religious programs on the radio. Uh, But this morning, on the Radio 4 morning service, they had a service in honor of the fact that it's 100 years since the Battle of Passchendaele in 1917. And on it, there was a testimony from a a Christian woman called Brenda Hale. And she spoke powerfully about how she has been able to keep trusting God despite the death of her husband, in Afghanistan, uh, Mark James Hale. 
So as we finish, we're just going to listen to Brenda's testimony.